0: Hi, I'm Pete McCall. Welcome to this episode of the All About Fitness podcast. If you think about fitness studio owners or health club owners, you probably think that they have it made, that they live the good life. You know, they're making money hand over fist. But I have a friend who owned a studio one time, and she was so passionate about her studio, about her gym. She wanted to keep it open. She wanted to have great programming for the members, that there were months when she had to sell her furniture to make payroll. She would literally sell stuff that she owned in order to cover costs at the health club. She told me that she would sleep in her health club sometimes because she, she basically did, was homeless and, and had to live at the health club and she ran it for seven years before having to close it down. Now imagine that. You're so passionate about something. You enjoy helping people. You enjoy the energy of group fitness. You're running a phenomenal gym, a phenomenal studio, but you're barely making it. And I've heard of other studio owners. I was just reading on Facebook the other day about a studio owner who basically lived off of peanut butter, protein powder, and eggs for his first six months, sleeping in his studio. That's not uncommon. When I worked in Boston for the Sports Club LA, it was in the Ritz-Carlton Towers. Those are two luxury high-rise hotel condominium towers. I'd go to work sometimes in the morning, and there'd be three Bentley Bentley's parked outside the health club. Now, imagine you're a 22, 23-year-old fitness professional, and you go to work in that environment. You're passionate. You love fitness. You love helping people. But here you are. You're going to work in a fitness center where, oh, my goodness, the people there are the elite of the elite, the top 1% in our country. And we don't need to go into all that stuff, but it really – you look at it, and it's like these are low-wage – not low-wage, but these are you know wage-earning professionals having to serve – the wealthiest elite in the country. And this isn't just at the wealthy elite, but at a lot of health clubs. Trainers, the average, if you look at the data, the average personal trainer is part-time and makes between about thirty-six dollars and $48,000 a year. That's the average personal trainer that takes in, and it's different region by region, city by city, but the average personal trainer works part-time and makes about thirty-six dollars to $48,000 a year. Full-time personal trainers can make somewhere between sixty dollars and $90,000 to $100,000 a year. Now, I'm talking average, there are, other, there are personal trainers that did have cracked the code and can, are do, doing really well, especially now in this day and age of everybody, doing, um, of everybody doing online coaching. They're figuring out how to crack the code and make money. But how about all these trainers that are 21, 22 years old and working with people who have incomes out through the roof? That creates an income disparity. That can create a lot of discomfort between the members, the elite, or people who have a lot of money, and the, and the people trying to serve them. Think about the pressure, and I see this, I experience this. You know, one place I work, it's like I got to be on a fashion show every time I go teach. You know, it's, you got to be wearing brand new workout clothes. You know, I, I know instructors spend almost entire paychecks at stores like Lululemon. All this to say that the All About Fitness historian, Dr. Nat- Natalia Petrozella uh, Dr. Petrozella is a professor of American history at the New School in Manhattan. She is currently working on a book on the, fitness, the history of fitness and the fitness industry in the United States. And I've had Dr. Petrozella on a few times. And, I'm just, and Natalia is a phenomenal person. She does a past-present podcast with a couple of her colleagues where they talk about how history impacts or what we can learn from history and how we apply it to today. And I call Natalia the All About Fitness historian because she really understands the history of fitness and really, she really understands some of the critical issues that, that affect the fitness industry. And she's been studying just fitness in our society and our culture. And she's also a group fitness instructor as well. I mean, yes, yeah, she's a full prof- or professor, but she also has been a group fitness instructor. On this episode of the All About Fitness podcast, Natalia and I talk about this disparity. We talk about the challenge of what it's like to be an instructor working with the elite of the elite. You know, you may be thinking, ah, that's not me, but still think about that, you know? Some of these instructors are, you know, they're contract workers. They might teach, you know, a couple classes here, a couple classes there, and they're they're humping all over the place. Same with personal trainers. You know, yeah, you can't make a decent living in fitness, but you gotta hustle. You have to hustle. There's a New York, uh, New York Times article about a month ago about how hard some Equinox trainers have to work, that a lot of Equinox trainers in New York City are living at or below the poverty line and they have to work 12 to 14 hours days in order to get by. And Natalia wrote this article, wrote this piece and kind of a counteract to that. So on this episode of All About Fitness, it's a lot of fun to catch up with Natalia Petrozella. She is the All About Fitness historian. And we talk about the struggles that fitness professionals deal with as they work in their different environments.
1: I'm Steve McCall, the All About Fitness podcast. And Dr. Prizella. just to let you know, uh, we officially, we had a board meeting this morning and we've decided to name uh, you the, the official political historian for the, uh-huh. all about fit, <laughs> for the All About Fitness podcast. How are you doing today?
2: I am honored to accept that esteemed title. Um, I'm even better now that I know that. Thank you.
1: <laughs> well, no, I just was. And for listeners, I, Dr. Prezella, um well, your area of focus, you're, 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 you're a professor of history, but what is your specific area of focus?
2: Um, contemporary United States. So in contemporary for a historian is really like the 20th century. And believe it or not, we're now in a moment when like 9-11 is part of history. So really uh, the culture and politics of the U.S.
1: in the modern era. And what I like about that and what what you do specifically and what I love about some of the pieces that you write is that you're not focused, but you incorporate fitness. Into it, And what I think, what I like, what I, as I was thinking about preparing for, for our conversation, what's really important about that is that fitness has become such an integral part of our lives that you're actually taking the time to kind of document how it's changing our culture. Is that really where it kind of, is that one, one area of your focus and one area of what you, what you work on?
2: Yes, definitely, and that's where you and I connected. Um, So the book I'm working on right now is is, uh, tentatively entitled Fit Nation, How America Embraced Exercise as the Government Abandoned It. And you're exactly right, Pete. It's a story of how working out or the ideal of working out became so prevalent and central to American life. And then the second part of that subtitle, I argue, is that even as the aspiration to work out has become – almost like unquestioned to most Americans, like of course working out is a good thing, it's actually become in many ways less accessible or at least less publicly funded that pretty much to participate in fitness today is to to participate as a consumer in a private market. So, um, yeah, that's, that's the work I'm doing right now. And I think, as you say, what excites me about it as a historian is bringing those tools to bear of analysis and archival research on a realm that doesn't usually get written about in the history books. A lot of people, most people don't go to the gym unless they're like, you know, kind of hobbyists obsessed with like muscle culture and think about that as a place where history is made. But I'm pushing back on that.
1: Well, no, I agree with you 100% because the gym becomes, you know, the gym for certain parts of society becomes a part of the daily routine, becomes part of our daily habits. It's just like, you know, and I don't mean to equate it from a spiritual standpoint, but, you know, traditionally, where would we meet people? We would meet people at the church. We'd meet people yeah. at the town meeting hall. But if you if you live in a large city like New York, the gym becomes like the neighborhood spot where you see people in your neighborhood on a regular basis. So I think what I love about your work is that people don't realize the impact this is having on us yet it really is influencing cultural overall. I mean, especially because you live in New York City. So you need such a really, such a different fitness market. I mean, does that, is that really kind of, is that a description of your work, uh, Natalia?
2: Yeah, I think that the role of uh, kind of new sites for community is super important to the work that I'm doing and to making an argument that this is a space to take seriously, like that people, you know, go to the gym, don't necessarily experience that as solely a place to work on their physical self. Right. This is just a place to lose inches or to bulk up. No, actually, exactly as say, particularly as other sites of community have kind of declined in, in relevance to a lot of Americans, um, this the gym has been a site that's actually grown in a way that doesn't always get commented on, or gets commented on sometimes. I think in a very like snarky way, like, oh yeah, boutique fitness—that's where all the kind of like rich ladies who lunch hang out—and that's not not true. But there are a lot of <laughs> (laughs) other, you know, um, but there are a lot of, um, but that, you know, that is a site for community building, and there are other places where that's been really important, too. I mean, one thing that I can't remember if I talked with you on the pod about it before, but I wrote this piece for Slate a while back about um, you know gym being a really important place for gay communities to build solidarity and to kind of build community when they were so unwelcome in other places, and um, that is sometimes forgotten. But that was hugely important, particularly during the HIV/AIDS crisis, when for a lot of gay men, actually showing that they were um, that they were in shape and healthy, and that you know had that kind of big bulky. Muscly look that was part of not just like be looking in shape but looking like you weren't dying right in a moment when when that that disease was ravaging the community so yeah and that and I could I could trot out many different examples of how that works for different communities but I think you're absolutely right.
1: Well and, and you know just just real quick in the last few days I was a couple of days ago I was in Wyoming and I was a friend a friend of mine uh, owns a studio in Jackson Hole Wyoming. And this is a very small, very high-end, very affluent community, but it's a very small community, and her fitness studio really becomes a kind of a social hub for the community. Yeah. And just yesterday, I was having lunch with um, one of the owners of the Gold's Gym, all the Gold's Gym franchises in Southern California, oh, cool. and we we're talking about – and that's what really, he really – as a as a gym owner, Natalia, he really wants, you know, and this is from an owner, he wants his gyms to be a community. He really works hard, his his team works hard so that, that their goals gym become part of the community. And so from, it was interesting to see that from two different levels, one on a micro level in a very small community like Jackson, Wyoming, and then on a much larger level for somebody that owns a chain in Southern California, they're both very mindful of the role that their fitness facilities play in the larger community.
2: Yeah, I think that's such an important point. And I think actually that a lot of smart gym entrepreneurs today are making that a more explicit and kind of proactive part of their approach, in part because of the rise of digital fitness, right? Like all you're selling at a gym is technologies or machines or particular classes to enhance your individual fitness. That's great. And we definitely need more of that. And that'll draw a lot of people. But as some of this technology gets better and better and you can shave off your commute time, especially if you're talking about rural communities, we have to drive miles to go to a gym, you know, then having, you know, doing video or not VHS, obviously, but doing some additional products becomes more enticing. But if gyms like it sounds like the gold people that you're talking to, if gyms are really intent about, okay, we want like human beings need in real life interaction. And we want to be really forthright about making that part of our mission and part of like what we're offering that I think that's a super smart move because that will never fully happen in digital space, no matter how many social media, like, you know, plugins you have, like, it's just different.
1: Well, in life, and then we'll, we'll, we'll go to your, you know, go into the top of your piece. But wow. Lifetime, Lifetime is starting to put in, uh, Natalia, Lifetime is putting in um, work centers. It's putting in, like, work centers into their newer facilities so that now if you're a member of Lifetime, you can go to the gym, work out, and then work in a, work in a um, pod for three or four hours if you're somebody that works for yourself or works from home so that that way you can literally spend the entire day at the gym, um, both <laughs> exercise and working and, and getting your work done.
2: Right. Well, it's funny, depending how you think of it, you're either spending the whole day at the gym or you're spending the whole day at work, right?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think, but they're creating that environment. So let's talk about your piece because this is, when when I saw it, it's kind of a continuation of something that ran the New York times recently, Mm -hmm. but talk a little bit about what your piece and for listeners have a link to it below in the show notes, obviously. So you can dive into it, but talk a little bit about what your piece covers and about why that's such an important topic.
2: Yeah, well, um, thanks for reading it and 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 identifying it as such an important topic. So basically, I wrote this piece that uses as a point of departure an experience I've had for so many years teaching fitness, which is like you teach a good class and someone comes up to you like a really enthusiastic student, and they're like, "Why do you even have a day job? Like you should quit." You know, this is we'll help you get training clients with the presumption that you know this is your true calling that personal training is like a surefire way to make a ton of money that'll give you financial security. And then for me personally, you know, I've always taught fitness on the side, even though I have a PhD and I'm a professor and um, I've done it in many ways because I love it. But I said, you know, my reaction to those, to those kind of students, very kind compliments is a little bit like, are you kidding me? Do you know how like, hard it is to make a living as a fitness professional? Do you know how much insecurity there is in sometimes not having any sick leave or health care? Or vacation time, or you pay a lot of money, you know, people pay a lot of money for your training sessions at big box gyms, but you get a fraction of that amount. And, you know, I don't want to be such a, so, you know, rain on the parade, but I was inspired to write this piece because to explore that dynamic, because as you mentioned, um, the New York Times ran an article about a week ago now about um, kind of exactly this issue where personal trainers at Equinox in particular, like, have such bad labor conditions compared to what you might expect because they work at this luxury gym. And so in a piece, I both say like, yes, this is true. Yes, it's bigger than Equinox, but also let's explore how this became something that we're outraged about, right? That there are lots of different jobs that cater to the wealthy, that honestly people aren't that surprised that they don't make a lot of money. Gardeners, tutors, chefs, like stylists, all these people, there wouldn't be an article in the New York Times being like, can you believe that your gardener wakes up at 5 a.m. and drives from, you know, God knows where to cater to this fancy house. And so the article that I wrote um, is about how the fitness professional kind of rose in popular esteem to be like your guru, your DJ, your fashion icon, as I think it is today, your therapist even, but at the same time, there hasn't been a catch-up in compensation or in in job security or in any of the kind of labor protections or economic security that you might think would be expected of somebody who is so important to many people's lives. And so that's kind of, you know, what the piece is about. And I should say, you know, I published most of this piece like i think it was 2 or 3 years ago and it like barely got a click it's just so funny and then when the equinox Uh, article came out, Um, the editor had said, can you like update the top? And, you know, we'll try and like rerun this because I think it would really, it would really hit. And I'm like, I don't know. No one really cared about it the first time. And then it's like on Facebook, boom, 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 boom. Like all these people are like, thank you for saying this. So I guess it's just the moment, you know?
1: (laughs) Well, and this is, but this is a really important topic. And you have to understand um, for listeners and for for you, Doc, um, my job, when I worked for the Sports Club L.A., I was a director of education and we had six clubs around the country, but two of our clubs were located in Four Seasons hotels and two Mm. of our clubs were located in Ritz-Carlton hotels. And in those locations, those Ritz-Carlton's and Four Seasons were also condominium developments. And Uh you're you're, you're talking about when I would go to the gym sometimes in the morning in Boston, there were two towers, there were two Ritz-Carlton towers, and that's where our health club was located. There would be three or four Bentleys down in the, in the, in the, uh, in, in the, what's that called? Um, the valet parking area there'd be wow. three or four bentleys you know of people who live there and you would go in into the gym and natalia at 10 30 a.m on a wednesday at a sports club LA in boston there would be 35 to 40 people training with trainers you're talking yeah. about the most affluent of the affluent you know yeah. and you're talking about old boston money so this piece really hit home because i've seen that dichotomy of where you have a trainer who just you know barely graduated high school maybe earned a certification, you know, maybe took some junior college classes and here they are, you know, working with somebody who is one of the highest net worth influence, you know, people in the world. And yet what I was trying to do was try and develop training programs to how to to, to teach the trainers, how to interact with this clientele, this level of clientele. Mm -hmm. So your piece really hit the the ball out of the park. Is it really, do you notice it, you know, when you're in, in New York, do you notice that disparity, between like the instructors and the members at various places you go in the city?
2: Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's very clear. And since I've been on both sides of this, honestly, not driving Bentleys to the gym, not quite. (laughs) But, you know, I've been members of these places and I've worked there and it is in every role, by the way, from the front desk to group fitness instructor. Um, But um, so, yeah, I've definitely, definitely seen that. And I don't think it's like Again, that's shocking that there are people who cater to very wealthy people and, like, are nowhere near their social status but or their economic status. But what I do think is unique about fitness professionals is that they're, like, seen rightly many times as experts. And they're entrusted to, like, give advice on problems and to give you this really intimate advice about your body and all of these other things.
1: Well, yeah. Real quick, can I pause yeah. on that for a second? Sure. Because that's one thing that I wanted to dive into is what is it about, like, because Soul Cycle is known for that. And I'm picking on yeah. them. I just, that's one of the things they're known for. What is it about instructors that feel that they can offer, you know, I've earned a certification to teach people how to sweat on an indoor bike. What makes me qualified to now give you, quote, unquote, spiritual advice or this self-help advice? That is a wonderful question and one that I ask
2: all the time. <laughs> Well, to your earlier question about, um, you know, community, we talked about how in some ways you could see the gym as the new church, right? And I don't necessarily think that's wrong, although maybe a little exaggerated. But I definitely think that there is this thirst in our culture right now for kind of life advice and for self-actualization. And that the gym has really stepped in, in a lot of ways to fill that role. And, and so a lot of that talk, right? And a lot of it is just platitudes, right? Like, be your best self, as opposed to, I don't know, like ten more reps or something like that is not exactly like providing like deep clinical psychological advice, but I all but I think that it's part of that kind of cultural thirst. I also think, and this is what I'm about to say, I do not think applies to all fitness markets, but I think certainly in sort of forward-thinking places, L.A., New York, I actually think as um, kind of weight loss advice has come a little bit out of fashion almost to be offensive in some places fitness instructors need something to say right so if you can't yeah. talk about bikini bodies and sculpting that middle and losing inches well, what's stepped in, and in some ways, I think in a very good way, has actually become this, like, pop psychology language about, like, being your best self and stepping out of your comfort zone, et cetera. So I think, like, there's a lot there of, like, how did this happen and why is it happening? But I think it has to do with people trusting fitness professionals more, but also kind of shift in what people's, what people's psychic needs are and also the language that's acceptable or welcome in a lot of these spaces.
1: Well, no, actually, I like that. I do think that's one of the reasons why people go to the gym or go to a studio is they want that community. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't thought about that because they can be looking at the instructors or the shaman, right? Yeah. When you look at like a native tribe, the shaman kind of guides a mystical experience or the shaman kind of guides the not traditional day-to-day experience, if that makes sense. The shaman is more of the the non-traditional. I hadn't really thought about that. Because it was funny, and I'll, I'll share this little story. So my ex-wife and I used to do teach indoor cycling at the mm-hmm. same gym. She would teach on, think, on, on Wednesday nights. I would teach on Tuesday. I can't remember. I, I either taught Tuesday and she <laughs> taught Wednesday or she taught, anyway, she taught Wednesday, Tuesday and I taught Wednesday. But what, what we found out down the line is that people would go to both classes to hear both sides of the same story or to hear <laughs> two sides of the same story. Because they know they would if they went to, to her class, they would hear her version of an event. If they went mm-hmm. to my class, they would hear my version of the same event. That's so you know? funny.
0: That. Because
1: as an instructor, and this goes to the point, and we'll, we'll talk about this. As an instructor, one of the things that, that's challenging is like, how do I engage the members of the room in a in a meaningful? I want to say something because I have thirty people staring at me for an hour, you know. But mm-hmm. how do I do it in a way that's relatively benign, meaning not political, not to, you right. know, not. So the, the thing I really try to do now is just cover TMZ. What well, was ever on TMZ? <laughs> yeah, I try to cover that. But what? You, but I think that's part of it, right, is when you're yeah. an instructor and you're an instructor yourself, what's it feel like to be in front of that room and, and kind of what's your go-to, Natalia? How do you engage your audience?
2: Yeah, so the class that I teach, and as a fitness instructor, which I do less of these days, which makes me really sad, but that's another conversation. But, um, yeah. you know, as an instructor, I the class that I've always taught is called Intense Sati, and it's a really unique kind of format where there's spoken affirmations with physical exercises. And so the premise of the class is very much like, here or the format, like you introduce with like, here's this thing I'm thinking about or struggling with in my life. Here's, like, this sort of, like, universalizing principle that, like, I can draw from that or what I'm trying to figure out. How does that affect you? Can you infuse your practice today with, like, some version of that thing? And it can be pushing past a challenge. It can be, like coming up with an alternative perspective but what I would always do and I still often do is come forward with like some very specific thing in my life you almost always not about fitness like you know my kid is really trying my patience I find myself yelling so I'm trying to do this thing where like I cannot yell at him for 10 minutes 15 minutes whatever what's something in your life that you want to just take that incremental step towards you know and so that's I think part of what you're describing, and you know, I kind of made that flip comment of like, well, people just need something to say, that definitely be that sort of uh, very superficial language happening sometimes. But I actually think it can be really wonderful and powerful. And I think what it can do, and I think when I'm at my best, I hopefully do this, is create the experience of the studio or the gym as like this template for what you're doing in the rest of your life, right? And I had a lot of feedback from students that said, you know, that that often works in my studio. That when, you know, if you can do 10 pushups here, like imagine you could on that date, you could ask for that raise, you could like not get pissed off when someone pushes you on the subway, even if not doing those things has always been your habit of mind, right? And so to me, that's like really powerful. Yes, I live for working out. I think it's so fun. It's like my favorite part of the day. But how much more powerful is it when you take that towards some greater um, some greater end, right, that really shapes you as a person? And that kind of keeps me going and I think, you know, makes our class and environment more of a community than just like, uh, here, I'm going to go get my sweat on and leave. Um, but that's just, you know, that's just my take on it. <laughs>
1: well, what I like about that, though, is you're showing the intent of that, that a good instructor, and, and I mean that because a lot of instructors may just show up and they don't really put, put much, you know, especially to go back to the original point of your piece, some instructors are working 15, 20 classes a week. Yeah. They're teaching 15 to 20 classes a week. They don't necessarily have time to prepare for each class like that. They just show up and boom, boom, boom. They just go through yeah. and go through the motions. Whereas right now you may only teach every now and then. And, I, you know, the instructors that don't teach full time, actually is, I hadn't thought about that, right? Because instru- instructors that teach full time, are running all over the city or running all over the place Ah. to teach all their classes. They don't have as much time to put into each class as people like you or I only doing it part-time right now. It's funny. I hadn't thought about it. Did that occur to you while you're writing your piece?
2: Oh my God, of course. And like, I have a lot, like I open the piece with that example where I'm kind of like a little snarkily saying to that enthusiastic student, like, are you kidding me? I love doing this and I do. I wouldn't, I don't have to do it. I wouldn't do it if I didn't have to teach fitness, but like I have a tenure track job. Like I got a PhD at Stanford. Like I didn't work that hard <laughs> for that. And it's, the, trust me, I respect fitness professionals like more than a lot of people with a million degrees after their name. Like I'm not, that is no way, like a slight but I'm saying like given I know studying this world and kind of operating in it how much hustle it takes and how exhausting it is on your body and your mind and all that and like like you're saying especially if you're teaching multiple formats like of course it becomes um a bit routine and a and a, and a, a job in not the most like transcendent sense right and I think that's What a lot of deep fitness professionals responded to that article with was like, do you know how hard it is to keep up the fiction of what you love, like, you know, your best self, which is part of the veneer of a great fitness instructor. It's so hard to do that when it's not that you don't love what you're doing, but geez, you can't afford to live in the neighborhood where are teaching, so you got to wake up at four in the morning to get there and put on that face. You know, and I think that that's where there's a lot of like frustration and that is that I'm really happy that I got that in the article and that people picked up on it. One of a woman who commented publicly on the article, so I'll say her name, but because especially because some of your, your listeners might know Molly Fox, who's like a real pioneer in the fitness world, like for decades, and she said so eloquently, I wish I had it in front of me, that um, you know, there is a facade that you have to keep up as the instructor to make it seem like you are the same level of affluence and you have the same lifestyle that they do. And she's like, it's simply not true. It makes you feel ashamed when you have to acknowledge that you're in a totally different financial position and no one wants to hear it, right? People are, and I understand this, paying a lot of money to come into a space to make them feel good. No one wants to be reminded of that, like, ugly fact of class inequality when they're just coming to work out, you know, and to be motivated, and she, she wrote, that's really exhausting, you know, and I got a lot of, she said it most eloquently, I think, but I got a lot of responses that made that point, including just one more example, a yoga instructor, whose name I won't share, but she said when she started teaching in gyms, and she was like, God, like the subway, you really have to leave so early to get here, which of course is unpaid time, and one of the managers said, oh, just get yourself a boyfriend in the neighborhood, and you won't have to worry about the subway. Like,
1: jeez, no, but that type of stuff is said, you know, and it's yeah, it's so funny because that is so that is such a it brought back memories of being a young trainer in Washington D.C. and mm-hmm. having clients that are like high end attorneys, high note. I had a client one time tell me that he was out to lunch with his with his brother, and they got into some kind of conversation about cars, and they went across the street to the Maserati dealership and he bought a Maserati. Oh, <laughs> you know and yeah, this was a, this this was like a um, he was a he was a hedge fund guy who split his time between you and D.C. and that's the type of that's the type of you know of, of, of influencer you're around. And what's interesting though, um, what really struck me too about the piece, and then we'll start wrapping it up. Yeah, is that at certain gyms where I taught, I felt very much a peer, like like when I taught um, with Washington Sports Clubs, and Washington Sports mm-hmm. Clubs would be considered a mid market club. Yeah. When, when I would teach classes there, I felt like a peer. I felt like the, the members treated me as one of them. I felt like I was, you know, they felt like they were friends, and I became friends with a lot of the members there. When mm-hmm. I taught at Sports Club LA, which no longer exists, it was bought by a different company, you mm-hmm. definitely felt like you were staffed. That was at the higher-end neighborhood, and now you definitely felt like you were a staff physician. Do you think there, there really is a mindfulness about people who come to fitness facilities about being more inclusive? And what I mean by that is people that might normally have a membership to a very high-end place might treat servers as like just servers, yet when they come to a a fitness facility like a yoga class or a bar class, do you think they have a different approach towards the service staff?
2: It's a good question. I mean, in some ways, I think that it's changing a little bit as like people respect fitness professionals more. And I'm saying that respect does not always come with a higher paycheck, like are always better treated for sure. But I do think in some ways, like there's this sense that now that you hear these stories of, oh, I love my job on Wall Street to become a yoga instructor or a fit spin instructor, or whatever. And there's a sense that those narratives exist. I think that you see, at least on the surface, even in those high end spaces, less a tendency to like just to treat the trainer like just the help, like no, they're a guru. They're you know, like they, they are. They are um, if not an exact peer, they kind of have high status right and I yeah. see those I see those old attitudes and new at, old attitudes being like just a disrespect oh this person must be a meathead or a diss or be uneducated I think that's a very old treatment of or, or you know that's an older treatment of um, fitness professionals that I talk about in the in the piece I see that bump up all the time against newer like oh my god I stopped going to therapy because you're so inspiring you know and it's like don't
1: stop going to therapy yeah. like I don't, you know, don't ever you hear that from anybody.
2: Yeah, but yet the backhanded compliment when I used to teach a lot more and I you know I was younger also like um I think I presented more like I don't whatever a typical fitness instructor means we could unpack that another day, but I definitely got the backhanded compliments sometimes often from older people who are kind of like, "Oh my god, you like you went to a really good school." Or like, "Wow, you actually seem smart," you know, and I'm like, "Why would, like I'm clearly smart enough for you to show up at this class all the time? Like why would your go-to assumption be that I'm I'm an idiot, you know, and I think that speaks to kind of older attitudes about, oh, these are just like meatheads and 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 like dumb people who like gravitate towards the gym.
1: No, I, you're absolutely right on that. And I definitely <laughs> had that response now to wrap up, because I don't want to make it seem all doom, doom and gloom. I do yeah. want to say that people that learn how to do fitness right. There are tremendous earning opportunities. Yeah. I think a lot, a lot of it, a lot of the, the, the New York Times piece I read did do. When well, I'll link to it below in the show notes, but it might yeah. be behind a paywall. But that occurred me that that occurs a lot with newer people to the fitness industry. But after maybe one, two, three years, you start learning how to hustle better and to mm-hmm. be more efficient. And I'm really surprised now that there are a lot of trainers out there earning significant levels of money. From being you know, on Instagram doing influence work, they're doing remote personal training, online training, they know how to leverage themselves. So is it possible for people that learn how to do this right, is it possible for people to transcend and move into a different income bracket themselves?
2: It absolutely is. You're a great example of that, right? As are a lot of other people who are benefiting from this huge boom in the industry. And I think I love your emphasis on people who learn to do this right, because, you know, yeah. as a lifelong educator, I really think that I hope that this boom in the industry has an attendant boom in like the cultivation of good education and expertise and all of that like we should be getting better at educating this uh this industry now, I know we don't want to be doing and gloom, and I'm like not totally doing gloom, but I do think a seed I want to plant, I'm sure you've thought of this before, but that I think is really important, is that like with this whole influencer world we're into, I do think it is something we need to be very aware of, and I think kind of, you know, like resist this tendency that to be successful in fitness or make money as an influencer does not mean that you have credentials, and we actually often see, I think, unfortunately, like great success and opportunities coming to people who have amassed following that, you know, might not be qualified to sense some of the advice that they're giving. And so I, um, you know, I know you do so much work with like the professional associations. And I think I really would love to think that that gets boosted up, right? And that we're raising the standard of like what certification should be and what kind of education we expect fitness uh, professionals to have beyond like quote, unquote, their own fitness journey or like looking really hot or being really mediagenic, because unfortunately, sometimes that can sub in for expertise or success. And I think that's that would be an unfortunate outcome of this moment when there's such great enthusiasm for fitness, which I think is an awesome thing.
1: Well, no, and I appreciate you wrapping it up like that. And I'm yeah. not sure if you thought that, you know, in the, in the wrap yeah. up for the, for the show, because you're right. People look at some they look at the appearance, they look at the the, the followers and they think that yeah. builds instant credibility. Well, I appreciate your taking the time to to join me for this conversation. Now, thank what, you. You have a reg- you have a regular podcast that that you're you're a member of, and and you said you have another project that you're working on. What, what's happening? in your world. Yeah.
2: Um, thank you. So, yeah, I have a regular podcast that comes out every Tuesday. It's called Past, Present. And myself and two other historians, kind of break down three of the big stories of the week in a fun, conversational way. And there's always a little fitness history that I work in one way or another. So that's happening. And then I can't say what it is yet, but in the first quarter of next year, launching a very different, very cool, big podcast. So, you know, if you're interested in that stuff, follow me in all the normal places and i'll post about
0: it and i'll have
1: i'll have your information down below in the show notes well Thank dr Petrozella i really appreciate you. i i love our conversations i really i appreciate the work you're doing and, and it was really fun to see how you're contextualizing fitness and the fitness culture into the greater part of our society i think that's fascinating work and and i at least geek out on it so hopefully a few other listeners do as well
2: Thank you so much. Um, I always love coming on and maybe we'll actually meet in person one of these days.
0: (laughs) Uh, Oh, that'd be a little bit too much. Yeah, okay. That may have been a fun conversation for me. Hopefully it was a fun conversation for you to listen to and kind of open your eyes a little bit. And, and just so you know, before I go into the full wrap-up, one of my goals with All About Fitness is I am not a bro podcast. I'm not here to go, yo, yeah, fitness is about big chest and look at me and yeah, man, I'm miring on bum. No, forget that, man. I want to I, I be the NPR of fitness podcasts. I want to elevate the discussion about fitness. I want to help you understand just everything all about fitness. It's, that's why I picked that title. I mean, it's all about fitness, but from a higher point of view. You know, I've taught at the college level, you know, and I do a lot of education programs. So I come at this from a different point of view. And for listeners, my undergraduate degree is in economics and political science. So I understand labor economics. I understand how this stuff applies. So before I go into the wrap up, if you want to know how to make, how to use exercise to slow down the aging process, if you want to know how to design your own workouts, if you want workout ideas that can help you get strong, fit, feel better pick up a copy of my book, Smarter Workouts, The Science of Exercise Made Simple. I have a link below down in the show notes. That link goes directly to the publisher because the publisher is where I get, and this is in my best interest, it's where I get the highest commission or the highest royalty. Because if you buy it from other online booksellers, authors don't make that much money. So please use the link below. Go to humankinetics.com. Pick up a copy of Smarter Workouts, The Science of Exercise Made Simple. It really will help enhance your quality of life. And what I mean by this wrap-up, it's a lot of fun to have these conversations with Natalia, but this is true. When I was a young trainer, you know, 28, 29 years old in DC, it really is intimidating. I was training clients, you know, my clients were attorneys billing at five, $600 an hour. You know, like I said, when I worked in Boston, when I lived in Boston, you know, there were people that lived in that tower that, you know, families go back to the Mayflower, you know, some of the early settlers of, of, you know, this, the country, they were, you know, nba players nfl players you know hockey players that lived in the towers you had you know hedge fund guys you know hedge fund ultra billionaires so yeah this is a real issue folks i know what it's like to be at that trainer and you know maybe maybe a client you know a couple people from your class like hey we're all going out after this and you're going yeah but i can't afford that you guys are going somewhere where drinks are 12 bucks a pop and i can't do that and that really is i mean Fitness is a lot of fun, but there really is kind of a cap on earnings unless you learn how to do, sell programs, sell online coaching. And that's why you see so many personal trainers getting into that because they're realizing, wait, I can do programs online, I can do online coaching, and I don't need to kill myself for 12 to 16 hours a day. Because that really is what happens. I've seen people do that. I've done that. You know, client, the, the three times a day that the trainer most trainers can see clients are early morning, you know, like 4.30 to 8 a.m., 8.30 a.m. When, before people go to work midday between about 11.30 and 1.30, you know, lunchtime. And then after, you know, maybe after 4 p.m. when you start getting the after-work crowd. Now, there are always outliers. There are people who work for themselves. There are people who are retired. There are the people like those in Boston who are independently wealthy. And not to keep harping on Boston, but this health club in Boston at 10 o'clock on a weekday morning 10 o'clock on a weekday morning, most gyms would be tumbleweeds. Most downtown, most gyms in downtown urban environments at 10 a.m. are tumbleweeds. The only people working out in a gym in a city like Boston, or most gyms in a city like Boston at 10 a.m. are hairdressers and waiters or servers. And I mean that. You know, Having been in D.C., the people that would come to, to the gym between about 9.30 and 11.30 a.m. were hairdressers and restaurant servers because they would go to work at about 11, 11.30 um, to get started for their day. But at this, at this club in Boston, there would be 40 to 50 trainers. We had 60 trainers on staff in Boston. At this club, there would be 40 to 50 trainers working with their clients at 10 a.m. on a weekday morning, any weekday morning. That's unreal, folks. Especially when the training sessions, this was a few years ago, training sessions were between, 100, were between 80 and $120 a session. So think about that. That's a this is a very real issue. You know, yeah, we know you know there are issues with economics and issues with wage earners. So I'm not saying whoa, what was us, but I'm just it is an issue. And it really is why I mean there's a lot of turnover. There there are clubs like, you know, 24-hour fitness experiences like 70 to 80% turnover in its in its personal trainer staff on an annual basis. There's a constant churn because people get into the industry and they just if they don't do it right, if they don't set it up right, they just get burned out. So this is a real issue, and, and I really want you just to pay attention to it. For For listeners that, that aren't fitness professionals, I just want to raise your raise your issue. If you are a fitness professional, personal trainer, and instructor, you know what I wanted to do was just kind of let you know that you're not alone. You're not the only one out there. You know, so you know, hopefully you got a lot out of this. Hey, if you haven't heard, I have a new YouTube channel. My YouTube channel is all about fitness podcasts. That's All About Fitness Podcast on YouTube. I'm going to be putting up a lot of workouts up there. I'm putting up a lot of information up there for you. It ain't going to cost you nothing. And you can learn a little bit more about exercise. And you can see you know, some of the workouts that can help you stay in shape along with some of the workouts that can help you slow down the aging process. And if you want to check down on a daily basis, follow my Instagram, Pete McCall underscore fitness on Instagram. That's Pete McCall underscore fitness on Instagram. And I'm going to throw this out there. I've created the All About Fitness Podcast hashtag. So I now have a hashtag for All About Fitness Podcast. If you're out there working out, if you're using, hey, if you want to say, hey, look at me, I'm doing this, I'm listening to the show, please use the All About Fitness Podcast hashtag. I'm trying to create a community. That's why I started the YouTube channel. I'm doubling down on my blog, PeteMcCallFitness.com. I'm putting a lot of content out there because I'm trying to help you understand how to use exercise to enhance your quality of life. Thanks for stopping by. I look forward to having you join me for future episodes of All About Fitness.